Amen, and it's a growing kingship. We're praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a progressive thing. In our lives, his kingship comes more and more. His will is done more and more. And we're going to be seeing in the life of David and Abigail that uh, their lives were not perfect. God does not set perfect families before us. It sets the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ before us. And so 1 Samuel chapter 25 And uh, we'll begin reading at verse 36. Now Abigail went to Nabal, and there he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. Therefore she told him nothing, little or much, until morning light. So it was in the morning when the wine had gone from Nabal, and his wife had told him these things, that his heart died within him. And he became like a stone. Then it happened, after about ten days, that the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. So when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord, who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal, and has kept his servant from evil. For the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal on his own head. And David sent and proposed to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David had come to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her, saying, David sent us to you to ask you to become his wife. Then she arose, bowed her face to the earth, and said, Here is your maidservant, a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. So Abigail rose in haste and rode on a donkey, attended by five of her maidens, and she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and so both of them were his wives. But Saul had given Michal, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was from Galim. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and it is our desire to honor it, to honor you, to worship you, to learn how we can grow more and more into the image of Christ, and we thank you for your grace that is sufficient for every need that we may face. We love you. We continue to worship as we hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Back in 1991, uh, James Dobson said, there are no winners when a marriage begins to unravel. Now, I would add a caveat. Uh, I would say that that is true unless both partners really embrace uh, God's grace. I have seen marriages turn from couldn't be worse to couldn't be better. On the other hand, I've seen marriages that have been miserable to the bitter end, and yet the believing partner in some of these marriages that I'm thinking of did not allow themselves to be overcome by bitterness In fact, uh, they triumphed at least over their own spirit. So were they winners? In a sense, they were. Uh, And yet they suffered throughout that whole whole, uh, marriage. Uh, We're going to be looking at some pretty messy situations in this passage. And I love the fact that God includes these passages because this is exactly what the Church of Jesus Christ is facing in America. Uh, It's such a relevant passage to uh, 2012. Now, we've already seen in this chapter that God enabled both Abigail and David to navigate some pretty choppy waters. But in this little section, we're going to be diving in and looking at what those choppy waters look like. And I'm doing that for three reasons. First of all, I'm doing it because I do not want our church to ever be judgmental of people who have troubled marriages. Um, you know, this is, this is something that we are going to be seeing more and more of, and they're already facing enough stress. What they need is for us to get behind them and to be ministering God's grace into their lives uh, rather than turning from them. The second reason is to encourage us that every one of us needs God's grace for our families. Uh, there is no perfect family, and we, if we think our family is perfect, we especially need this message, <laughs> okay? We especially need God's grace. The third reason I'm going to be preaching on this subject is to give comfort to people whose lives have been ruined, whose marriages have been ruined through the sin uh, of another uh, person. Uh, 
God's grace and God's blueprints are sufficient to fix most problems that you will find in a marriage. But there was no solution for verse 44. Verse 44 was a disaster. And there, there just was no solution uh, to it. In fact, David made things worse when he tried to, to fix it. It was a horrible tragedy. And there are many Christians who suffer in a similar way to what David suffered in verse 44. It was through no fault of David's that that marriage uh, was broken there. And when people uh, come into our congregation as troubled families... Uh, we need to be there for them, not enabling sin. We're not talking about that. We've already seen in, earlier in the chapter that God is against enabling sin, but ministering God's grace in their lives, being for them. Now, it is true, just like Nabal, and actually we probably should use the Hebrew pronunciation, Nabal, Nabal, uh, just like Nabal, uh, not all of them will be receptive, but at least we can have the spiritual tools by which we can minister to them. Now, before I dive into this passage, I want to make a brief comment as well on why it is that I make, uh, try to make practical applications in every sermon that I give, because there are Reformed preachers who will criticize this. In fact, there's um, a fairly new model of preaching called the redemptive historical model of preaching that says you should never make applications. That's moralism. That's a, that's a horrible thing to do. And they make it look like uh, all you should do with historical passages is preach redemptive historical preaching. And they do do something pretty good. Uh, their people understand the gospel and the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ rather well but they don't understand how that practically transforms every area of life. And uh, what it does, let me just summarize in one word what I think of this. Hogwash. <laughs> Some of you might have a little bit more colorful words uh, for this. Uh, but what it does is it starves the people of God, absolutely starves them by neglecting huge areas of life that the Scriptures apply to. And... Um, it completely ignores the history of preaching, especially the preaching of the Puritans. Boy, they were big on applying. But all through history, they did that. And um, it ignores the sermons that you'll find in the Scripture as well. Now, because this has infected Reformed churches, let me just give you one clue from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 as to why this is wrong. After giving some Old Testament history in 1 Corinthians 10, what does Paul do with that history? He says, now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted and do not become idolaters as were some of them. He's saying the very purpose and intent of God giving those Old Testament histories was to give us moral admonitions that we need to follow. It's the exact opposite of what this uh, new redemptive historical model of preaching, which does, again, have some good things in it, but it's the opposite of what they say about applications. Then after giving more history... Paul says, now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So this morning, I want you guys to be receptive to some admonishments and moral lessons. And I think the, the chief moral lesson that I want you to walk away from is that we need to run to God's grace for our families every single day, every single day. If Abigail and David, as godly as they were, could have messed up families, so can any one of us. It's very easy to happen if we do not cling to the grace of the Lord. So we're going to look, first of all, at Abigail's family. Verse 36 says, Now Abigail went to Nabal. Now, verse 25 indicated, and we looked at that already, that Nabal had uh, lived up to his uh, name, which means fool, and he was spiritually foolish. Now, if you trace through the, uh, the usage of the term fool, which is what Nabal means, uh, you'll find that it's used of unbelievers or it is used of believers who will not follow God's laws. It is foolishness. Now, here's the question. Why would a smart girl like Abigail marry an unbeliever like Nabal? That's a good question. 
And we're not told in the text why, why she did, but it can happen. I have seen women who have willfully married an unbeliever. In a couple of cases in our previous church, they came under discipline and they didn't respond to the discipline, eventually got excommunicated, and they still did not repent until maybe two or three years down the road they see the horrible, disastrous consequences of their decision. They repent. They come back into the church. And can they be restored? Absolutely, yes. And God's grace can be rich in their lives and enable them to show forth God's grace to their unbelieving husband. But it doesn't do away with the nasty consequences of the decision that they've made. But I've known others who have thought that they married a godly person only to have that person deny the faith. Well, that happened to my aunt, and through no fault of her own, she had to endure a miserable marriage. So it can happen, and part of the church's job is to help that family the best that we can and help them not just to survive, but to help them to thrive by God's grace. And it is possible uh, for that to happen. Our church can be a sanctuary for such messed up families. Now, the second thing that we see about Nabal is that he was a poor financial steward. Now, I didn't say he was poor. We already found out he's incredibly rich. Uh, but he was not handling his finances to the glory of God. He was not being a wise steward. Okay, uh, verse 36 uh, just gives a little hint. We've already seen how he was humanistic in this area, but this is just a little hint. And there he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And he goes on to talk about his drunkenness. He didn't even notice that his wife was not there. He didn't care that he had violated God's uh, laws of hospitality with regard to David and his men uh, who did not have food. And this was the ideal time for him to have shown uh, hospitality to them. He was utterly unaware of how close to death he and his family had come. It was just all about indulging himself. Now, don't get me wrong, I am not saying that God is against rich people. He is not. He is not uh, against rich people enjoying the, the fruit of their hands. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, and I might add, like Nabal was, nor to trust in uncertain riches, like Nabal foolishly was doing, but to trust in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. So there you have it. He's given things to rich people because he, he loves people to enjoy these things. It's not like they cannot enjoy them, but it's within a context of total stewardship. So he goes on to say, Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. So he's saying that is what stewardship should look like. And in, a, in addition to enjoying God's wealth, rich people like us, and really by comparison to third world countries, almost all of us are pretty rich, right? So what he's saying is rich people like us, we need to be thinking through how do we use our finances in a way that can help other people, that can advance God's kingdom, that can be used with an eternal perspective of laying up rewards in heaven where we're stewards of every dime. Nabal did not do that. He refused to... Uh, give David and his men, despite the fact that David and his men had rescued all of Nabal's good. I mean, he owed David big time. Uh, despite the fact that David and his men had continued to protect uh, his goods for a long time, he was failing to be generous with them at all. He was a poor steward. And there are many women today whose husbands aren't good stewards. Of course, I've known wives who waste their husband's monies as well, and it creates stress for the spouse. It puts these um, women in a hard place, and sometimes the men in a hard place. Abigail, obviously, was a good manager. She was able to stock the larder and uh, take care of the servants that uh, Nabal was so mean-spirited towards, but she did it respectfully, and she did it submissively, and we'll look at that in a moment. But this is another reason why families need grace. One or both partners can fail to keep their marriage vows, and in this particular circumstance, they can be wastrels. They can be poor stewards 
of the family resources. And the church, I think, could be a help in this by encouraging, instructing, mentoring people. What does good stewardship look like uh, before the Lord? But I think this is an admonishment to us. If we do not go to the Lord's grace for our families continually, we can end up being just as selfish as Nabal was. And we can model for our children selfishness because all they see is we don't do anything for others. All we do is stuff that benefits ourselves and our families. And so that's something we need to look out for. The third difficulty that she faced was that Nabal was a drunk. Verse 36 goes on to say, And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. And he was so drunk that the next phrase indicates that she couldn't even communicate with him that evening, or maybe didn't dare communicate with him that evening. She told him everything the next day. But uh, people who have been addicted to alcohol or to drugs have brought untold misery to their families. And it would have taken the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ for Abigail to stick with him. And since we're dealing with points C and D, they're kind of linked together in real life. I'll, I'll kind of mix the two together here as well. Point D says that her husband wasn't the easiest person to submit to. And yet she did it. Verse 36 says, He was very drunk, therefore she told him nothing, little or much, until morning light, but then she tells him everything. Now earlier she had engaged in an intervention without his knowledge because she was trying to save his life, but she didn't want to do anything behind his back, so she wanted to give full disclosure, just can't do it now. Either it wasn't safe or he was not rational at all, but gives full disclosure uh, in the morning. And uh, anyone who's been with uh, an addict uh, for any length of time, maybe is married uh, to an addict, knows exactly what I'm talking about. These spouses can bring constant stress into the family. Very, very difficult. But it's not just addicts who are tough to live with. We saw earlier in the chapter that he was mean-spirited. Uh, he was an angry and a hostile man earlier on. And even lesser than hostility, grouchiness can take God's grace so that we respond to grouchiness appropriately, right? It takes God's grace. Uh, Pastor um, uh, Hewitt told the story of one of the children, just a little five-year-old, and uh, overheard her say, asking the mommy, Mommy, how come all the idiots come out on the... Uh, how did she say it? Mommy, why do the idiots only come out when daddy drives? <laughs> out of the mouths of babes and idiots. No, out of the mouths of babes and infants. Obviously, in that house, I mean, in that car, the, the atmosphere was thick with anger, right? And it can be extremely, extremely difficult to live with a grouchy person, to live with a, a difficult person like that. And we saw earlier that uh, it doesn't mean that you have to completely put up with that. Uh, she didn't enable. Uh, there are times where we saw it's appropriate to have gracious intervention, but for today's uh, sermon, the main thing I just want to point out is that God's grace does not call us to bail out on our families simply because they are difficult to live with. Okay, We're not to bail out. We need to ask God for wisdom on the specific ways that we can fulfill Romans chapter 12, to not be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. And I've preached on how to do that in the past, uh, some of the past sermons. Now, here is the point in bringing these things up. As I mentioned earlier, the Bible is not a book about perfect families. The Bible is a book about God's grace. Even families where everything's been running smoothly for years and everything's beautiful in that family, it's beautiful because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the transforming grace. We always need the grace of God in our lives. And I could tell you of several families that have gone through years of misery to the point where they've been to counselor after counselor, and they've wanted to get a divorce. And I said, you can't get a divorce. And, and as we have worked God's blueprints, along with God's grace into their lives, they came to a place where they, they had beautiful relationship. I remember one couple that traveled every week, about four hours this way, four hours back, in counseling. And uh, it was about 12 weeks later, they were, with tears in their eyes, they were saying, our marriage is better today than it's ever been since we were married. 
This is what God's grace can accomplish through the toughest, toughest uh, kinds of situations. So, the Bible was written to give us hope. And that's why it presents us families with families that are messed up. But there are times where one of the partners absolutely refuses to apply God's grace. And that's where point E comes in. We saw earlier in the chapter the amazing depth of God's grace in Abigail. God's grace enabled her to sacrificially serve her husband and be loyal to her husband, even though he didn't deserve it. She saved his life, even though he didn't deserve it. And I'm not going to review what we looked at uh, in, the, in, in the past. Uh, I've referenced verses 13 through 45 to prove that. But I just want to look at one little phrase in verse 38 that shows even in his last days, she continued to care for her husband even though he didn't deserve it. Let's begin reading at verse 37. So it was in the morning when the wine had gone from Nabal and his wife had told him these things that his heart died within him and he became like a stone. Then it happened after about ten days that the Lord struck Nabal and he died. Now, commentators say is probably two things that happened here. He first of all had a heart attack, and then he got a stroke which paralyzed him. It says that he became like stone. He was utterly unable to respond. But here's the point that I want you to notice. It took 10 days for him to die. This means that his wife must have been hydrating him to some degree during that period of time. You cannot survive for 10 days without water. Now, if you're like stone, you can't respond. You can't eat. You cannot drink. So she must have gone to great measures to be able to hydrate him during this time. And even then, he didn't die of natural causes. It says at the end of 10 days, God struck him dead at that point. And so even this brief account gives two indications of her faithfulness to her husband. The first one is that she did not try to hide the fact that she had intervened on his behalf. Now, he might have gotten angry, but we've already seen that uh, she had not done this out of rebellion. She had done it in intervention to save his neck. And then the second thing is when she had a chance to let him die, she didn't do it. Even jerks need to be treated with dignity. Okay? She obviously cared for him in his dying days, and if that does not exemplify the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, I do not know what does. Okay, my aunt's husband was a drunk who was mean when he was drunk, but even when God, near the end of his life, struck him with almost total paralysis, paralysis, she loved him by God's grace and ministered to him, and my parents loved him by God's grace and ministered to him, and he actually became a believer prior to dying. The reason we know it is he was able, it was just barely could squeeze the hand. That was his yes. That was his only means of communication. No response if it was a no, a little squeeze if it was a yes. And uh, he came to Christ as a result of seeing God's grace uh, lived out in their lives. Now, I've got one more point under Abigail. In the end, God gave her a way out of her mess. Verse 38 does not uh, ascribe the, the death to the stroke alone. It says, Then it happened, after about ten days, that the Lord struck Nabal and he died. doesn't say that she's wishing for his death. Now, maybe she did, maybe she didn't. doesn't say that. God sovereignly struck him. And I should point out that not all miserable marriages... Uh, are allowed by God to end as this one did. But Paul guarantees us in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, that no matter how miserable our lives might be, God always makes a way of escape that we may be able to bear it. And some people latch on to that, oh, way of escape, yeah, I want a divorce, I want to get out. And he doesn't say that. That you may be able to bear it implies you're still under it, Right? So you're able to bear the misery, and he's talking about escape from sin. You don't have to sin, is what what Paul is saying. That's the way of escape. It's the escape from sin. So in Abigail, we see that she needed grace, she had sufficient grace, and she ministered God's grace into the life of her husband. Now, there's no evidence that her husband actually repented uh, prior to his death. Uh, We assume that he did not. But you know what? God's grace 
can bring such people to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, as I mentioned already in the life of uh, uh, my, my uncle, uh, the Lord uh, did exactly that. And that's what 1 Peter 3 promises. But now we're going to move on to David's messed up family. Started off joyful. Uh, it uh, started with him marrying Saul's daughter, Michal, back in chapter 18. And on her part, it says it was love at first sight. And they had uh, a delightful beginning marriage, it looks like. But then... King Saul starts persecuting, that's his father-in-law, right? Starts persecuting David. Now, some of you have had to put up with the misery of in-laws who are just tough to get along with. They persecute you, and you wonder, Lord, why do you have to put me into the situation where I'm having to deal with such messed up people? Well, God does it for the same reason he puts other unbelievers into your lives. It's for your sanctification, to drive you deeper into the grace of God. And I can assure you, God delights in your holiness much more than he delights in your comfort. And so if he sees you're going to need more things, he brings more things into your life so that you will become, uh, that you will become holy. But things get even worse for David. He's on the run. His father-in-law is trying to kill him. And then take a look at verse 44. Sometime prior to this chapter, Saul had given Michal away to another man. He had no authority to do this. Okay? It was a horrible sin. It was a horrible tragedy. It was a no-fault divorce. And it was a divorce that, that they engaged in without ever even consulting David. Okay? And we're going to discuss that later. But if this second marriage of Michal was a true marriage, whether reluctantly or not, Michal had to agree to it. Uh, she... Uh, probably was just sticking with her earlier story that David had threatened to kill her, and what could she do? And he says, okay, if he was going to do that, then uh, you are going to marry somebody else. And she was too fearful to tell the truth to her father. But um, anyway, I'll explain that a little bit later. But this permanently broke the marriage with David and freed him up to marry again. We're going to see in 2 Samuel that it, w it was a heartbreak. It, it probably took David a long time to get over. Some people think he probably never did get over uh, this forced separation of Michal uh, from David. Now, let's jump back to verse 39. David gets married again. I'm going to read that. So when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept his servant from evil. For the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal on his own head. And David sent and proposed to Abigail to take her as his wife. Now, when you read the commentaries on these uh, verses here, you see these commentaries imputing all kinds of motivations to, to David. David just seems a little bit too eager to uh, uh, see Nabal dead. And has he been wishing that he could marry her all along? Has he been coveting somebody else's wife? Uh, does he want out of a bad situation? Now, some people read back into this passage uh, David's later weakness with looking at women and saying, you know, from the moment he set eyes on her, he was desiring her to be uh, his wife. And, of course, there are men whose eyes get them into trouble. Now, these are theories that are out there. Now, they may or may not be true. Others say that David admired her godly character, and once Nabal was dead, uh, he wanted to be quick on the draw before any other kinsman redeemer uh, offered uh, to be, uh, you know, a leveret marriage, to raise up seed to Nabal, which is what leveret, leveret marriage was all about. She had not had any children to this point. So they say it was a leveret marriage, and again, the text says nothing about this. It's possible. Others say that David was marrying out of personal ambition and political gain. And he was not entering into this marriage for love. He was marrying for the money and influence. And they say, look, Nabal was the most powerful clan leader in that region, the most wealthy leader in that region. So by marrying Abigail, he can not only accumulate wealth, but he can give to himself a, the kind of political ties with these relatives that would stand him in good stead. And they say, look, it's significant that later on when he gets coronated, he gets coronated right in this region. Now, people say, well, that's not necessarily true. He could have married out of love, and of course you're going to have relations that come out of that, and, and that's going to benefit you down the road. But you can see these motivations uh, that they're putting into David's uh, mind. 
Others say it was an ordinary marriage that David simply married a helpmate who was perfectly suited to his future role. He had nothing but pure motives. They're trying to defend David here. And again, I don't know how they could know he has pure motives if the text doesn't tell us. So a good question is, okay, Pastor Kaiser, if the text doesn't talk about the motives, why in the world are you bringing up all of these theories about David's motivations? The reason I'm bringing them up, despite the fact that the text does not say explicitly, there's maybe hints, but does not say explicitly, is because if commentaries today can jump to all of these conclusions, and there are quite a wide variety of conclusions, I'm sure there were people in the time of David who jumped to similar conclusions, whether rightly or wrongly. Now, here's my application. Very important that families go to the Lord and are driven by what the Lord thinks of them, not driven by what other people think of them. When your family is driven by the expectations or the assumptions of other people, it can become an absolute snare to you. And I've seen people who are always doing things in their family because of what their relatives think or what somebody else thinks. And that's not what should drive us. We need to be driven only by what God wants us to do not what our relatives expect us to do. Second application. We need to go to the Lord's grace to cover sins of ignorance. We don't always know what our motivations are. And it's appropriate to ask God, Lord, I know my wicked heart, and I just pray you would reveal to me if I've got uh, bad motivations. And if you don't think you can have mixed motives and mixed goals for your family, you don't understand human depravity yet. Yes, we can. We can, and we need God's grace every moment of every day. Here's a third application. Whatever the motivations, whether good or bad, God's grace obviously covered those things because God blessed David and he prospered David. That's the amazing thing about God's grace. It gives us God's favor despite the fact that we are sinners. Okay, We are secure in the Lord Jesus Christ and his justification despite the fact that we are imperfect saints. And that's what makes our sanctification such a joy. We don't grow in sanctification in order to gain God's favor or in order to, because we're fearful of losing God's favor, we grow in our sanctification because we're secure in our justification. Our sanctification has to flow out of justification and because we love God. We are so blessed that we are secure and the Son. Now, those are two totally different ways of approaching sanctification. One approaches it out of fear and insecurity. The other approaches it out of faith and security. Now, let's move on to point B. At this point in David's life, he had a heightened sense of his sinfulness. We just have one phrase in verse 39, but um, it's enough to remind us of everything he said uh, in the previous sermon. It's the phrase where he blesses God in verse 39. It says, quote, Who has kept his servant from evil? Exclamation mark. He is still so thankful that Ab- God used Abigail to rebuke him and to keep him from evil. He's got a heightened sense of the Lord's uh, mercy and grace toward him. And when you look at the messes that were in Abigail's and David's families, Uh, what they can get themselves into, we need to realize apart from God's grace, we're all going to be in the same boat, which means we should have a heightened sense of gratefulness to God when he spares us from regrets, and we need to have the attitude when we look at either family, there but for the grace of God, go I. Point C, whatever can be said of this marriage, it certainly was a marriage that enriched and empowered David. Look at verses uh, 40 through 42. When the servants of David had come to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her, saying, David sent us to you to ask you to become his wife. Then she arose, bowed her face to the earth, and said, Here is your maidservant, a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. So Abigail rose in haste and rode on a donkey, attended by five of her maidens, and she followed the messengers of David and became his wife." The commentators point out that for her to take five maids with her was extremely unusual. Uh, Even with rich people, it was usually two maids that they took with her. And so by taking five maids, she is making a pretty bold declaration that she is independently wealthy. Uh, She is, uh, in in effect, saying, 
I don't need to get married for financial reasons. I don't need to get married for social reasons. I don't even need to get married, okay? She was independently wealthy. Now, this heightens three things. It means she's going voluntarily, she's going eagerly, and she is going with humility. And I think it's just a beautiful way of stating both her eagerness, but without saying so, and it also shows her total willingness to serve even though she doesn't need to. She is not dependent. She's not insecure. She does not have need. And so when she, when she is um, willing to serve and submit despite the fact that she does not need to, her submission is so voluntary that it is more, more prized. And you combine that with her speech and you realize she was a, a rare treasure. She was an incredible wife, an incredible fortune, a position of influence within this uh, clan uh, of Judah that, that David was gaining. So even though he lost his relationship to royalty, you know, in terms of inheritance, you've got to be related somehow because Michal is no longer his wife, uh, what happens here is that he gained a status within this clan that would help to seat him on the throne later. Now, again, some people say it's mercenary. I don't know that you have to go that direction. But certainly in God's providence, uh, God blessed uh, him uh, by enabling him ha to have uh, the, these relationships. But, <laughs> there's always buts in our lives, aren't there? But in the next two verses, we find two more things in David's family that were not as they should be. Verse 43, David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and so both of them were his wives. Well, why would he do that? You know, verse 3 says that Abigail was gorgeous and says that, uh, you know, she was very smart. And, of course, the rest of the chapter says she was godly, she was humble, she was an ideal wife. Why in the world would David go and take another wife? Well, I believe it was in part because socially, you look at all of the countries round about there, socially it was expected that kings would have more than one wife. In part, it may have been a strategic alliance with another section of Judah because Jezreel was another section and it wouldn't hurt, you know, to get all of that wealth from another family to support his uh, 600 uh, soldiers. But still, from our perspective, it is hard to conceive of David marrying somebody else so soon after ma marrying Abigail. If David had read his Bible carefully, he would have seen that this was a bad social custom. And uh, he would not have succumbed to pragmatism. And if you want to study this on your own, Deuteronomy 17 is quite clear that kings are only supposed to have one wife. Crystal clear, only one wife. Genesis 2, quite clear as well. Now, David could argue, hey, it's not illegal. Yeah, and drugs and other stupid things were not illegal under a biblical economy either. Not everything that's sinful was illegal. And uh, it wouldn't take much reading of the Pentateuch for David to figure out pretty quickly that polygamous marriages, while legal, were sinful, stupid, and produced absolute disaster. And so why would he follow a social custom when the Bible is so clear? For the same reason that we engage in sins that are socially acceptable. We do it all the time. You see it everywhere. You cannot point the finger at David because back then, nobody thought second thing about it. Well, some people did, but they didn't think too much about polygamy. And nowadays, if you can get away with a sin, you find Christians all over America who are so messed up. Why? Because it's a politically okay sin to engage in. And people get hurt in the process. I'm sure Abigail felt pretty bad. If I was in her shoes, I'd feel terrible uh, when, when he marries Ahinoam. As far as I'm concerned, David was a fool to do this. He should have been rebuked by his pastor. Remember that Pastor Abiathar joined his ranks in chapter 23, and he brought at least one warning to David that we are told about. So it's not like he was a totally bad pastor, but he was absolutely silent on a subject that was destructive to the health of a family. And of course, he was no different than modern, very, very respected pastors who refuse practice church discipline or refuse to preach against government education despite the fact that it's destroying an entire generation of people who refuse to preach against other family weakening practices. Again, we cannot point the finger at David, I mean at Abiathar, without at the same time realizing there's fingers pointing back at us 
where the church of Jesus Christ has similar sins. And brothers and sisters, the Bible is quite clear in its painting of the life of David that there were horrible, nasty consequences for every one of David's compromises. Every one. Sure, he was forgiven, but he still has a harvest to contend with. Sure, he was a great man, but he suffered too. So we have messed up families who need God's grace. We also have messed up pastors who need God's grace. And I would encourage you, pray for the pastors all over America that they would have the courage to say the things that need to be said to the Davids who live within their congregations. It's not just a nation that's messed up today that needs God's grace. We've got churches that are messed up and need God's grace. We've got families that are messed up. By the way, this is one of the reasons I've been involved in biblical blueprints. Outside of the church, uh, it's been my passion for years and years to be used to bring reformation to family, church, and state. I can't do it by myself, but God is raising up hundreds all over America with the same passion, and we should pray that God would give them success. Now, there's probably one more messed up thing in David's life here. I can't guarantee it. This is reading between the lines, but commentators are almost universally thinking that David would likely not have followed this social custom if it was not for the lust of his eyes. The lust of his eyes. Uh, when we get into Second Samuel, we're going to see that David's eyes were indeed his downfall. He had not learned how to control his eyes and his mind. So let me speak to you brothers here. <clears throat> Some of you may not have even thought about where your eyes are wandering when you talk to women in this congregation. I can guarantee you the women notice. Part of the reason is you might just not even be, it's not on a conscious level of what you're doing. But you need to think about where your eyes are going. And I would encourage you men, when you talk to women, look them in the eyes and don't just stare them down either. Look away occasionally, okay? <laughs> They'll make them real uncomfortable if you're just looking them in the eyes all the time. Look them in the eyes and just think, where is your mind wanting your eyes to wander? Don't do it. We have got to have disciplined eyes. We've got to have a disciplined mind. And if you've not learned how to discipline your thoughts and discipline your mind, talk to me. That's something that's very, very critical so that you don't fall into the, into the sins that David did. Anyway, David's lack of disciplined eyes led to disaster, at least in the later chapters, disaster with his wives, disaster with, with his children. And, and can we say, was God's grace sufficient for that? Oh, absolutely, yes. His grace is sufficient for all of our sins, just as it is sufficient today to bring healing to men who engage in the abominable practice of watching pornography. His grace is sufficient to forgive and to cleanse, and, and wives can cleanse and forgive as well. But are there disastrous consequences? Yes. You never get rid of the harvest, and that's what we've got to get into our heads. Don't think that forgiveness wipes every, it wipes, it wipes the slate clean as far as them holding things against us. It does not wipe out the fact that there are disastrous consequences that flow from our actions, and you can definitely see it in the life of David later on. And so uh, the point I want to make here is it's much better to apply God's grace as preventative medicine rather than always as picking up the pieces after you've sinned. There is a lot of preventative medicine that we need to learn. So David serves as a positive role model as well as a negative role model. 1 Corinthians 10 says we should examine these historical accounts not only to discover a faith that we should imitate and follow, but also to discover the weaknesses and the compromises in our heroes so that we do not repeat them. Uh, just this past week, there was somebody outside of the church that was excusing his sexual behaviors. With, hey, David did it. And I said, yeah, David did it, but he suffered as a result. This is stupid. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us, in great detail what these sins are and the rest of scripture describes the consequences of those sins so that we fear and tremble and don't even think about it being involved in those sins it's stupidity to excuse sin because some hero in the past is engaged in sin why do you want the consequences and the sword and all of these other things to be in your lives no so we cannot excuse our sin 
It should make us cringe and shudder at sin and run to the cross of Christ for remedy. Now, the last thing about David's family is given in verse 44. But Saul had given Michal, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was from Gollum. Now, in this particular passage, we aren't told if Michal did this against her will or did it voluntarily. Technically, a marriage would not be considered valid if it was uh, done against a person's will. And I think, uh, the reason I think she voluntarily divorced David and married Palti is because God twice calls Palti her husband in 2 Samuel 3. doesn't say that Palti falsely concluded that he was her husband. God himself says that she, uh, he was her husband. And God doesn't do this just uh, lightly. Uh, for example, you look at Herod. It says that he was, quote-unquote, married to his brother's wife, but the Bible refused to call him husband. Uh, he was not the husband. He still called her the, uh, uh, the wife, or called uh, her, his brother the husband of this woman. I, I, can't, I can't get it out of my mouth here properly. And you look at the, the woman at the well. She's had five husbands, and the sixth one that she thinks she's married to says, he's not your husband. Okay, so just because you're married does not mean it's necessarily a husband. But in this case, God says that she was. Now, there's huge significance in this. If my conclusion on this is true, that means that what David does in 2 Samuel chapter 3, in forcing her away from her husband, he's weeping all along the road. And finally, at forest, they say, get out of here. Don't come along. He's breaking up this second marriage, bringing her back and, and uh, remarrying her. Deuteronomy 24 says that's an abomination that defiles the land. Jeremiah 3 verse 1 says it's an abomination that defiles the land. So when we're talking about David's family, we're talking about horribly messed up. And are we going to have people like that that we're going to be ministering to in America? Yes, we will. Yes, we will. We're going to have to minister God's grace to these people. Uh, we're talking uh, huge problems because people did not follow the laws of God. But here, it was not David's fault. Here, it was not David's fault. In verse 44, Saul's giving of Michal to, to Palti uh, was, I mean, it was probably her fault. She could have said no, and she did not, but it was not David's fault. It was a mess that made him cry out to God, and God in the Psalms ministered to David in his anguish as he can minister to each of us when you have received irreparable harm. I want to conclude by reading some of the sections of the Psalms that I believe really helped to sustain David during this time. I'm not going to read all of them because by this time David's written at least 16 Psalms, if not more. Uh, but uh, these are Psalms that alternate between pain and faith. They acknowledge uh, the weakness of his flesh, the sufficiency of his grace. They're Psalms of tears. They're Psalms of hope. And I believe they're Psalms that can help us to keep on keeping on even when the going gets tough. So just make it a, your prayer as I read through these things. O Lord, you number my wanderings. Put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? Vows made to you are binding upon me, O God. This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite heart. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? I cry out to the Lord with my voice. With my voice to the Lord, I make my supplication. I pour out my complaint before him. I declare before him my trouble. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then you knew my path. Look on my right hand and see, for there was no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. 
I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, You are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise your name. O God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. Because you have been my help, therefore, in the shadow of your wings, I will rejoice. My soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. Uphold my steps in your paths, that my footsteps may not slip. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wings. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For my soul trusts in you. And in the shadow of your wings I will take my, make my refuge until these calamities have passed by. I will cry out to God Most High, to God who performs all things for me. He shall send from heaven and save me. He reproaches the one who would swallow me up. God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. And may God do so for each of our families and for families in the church all over this world. Let's pray. Father God, you know the secrets of our hearts. You know the secrets of our families. Father, you know the things that are messed up. And we believe that your grace is sufficient for all of those things. And Father, I pray that this congregation would be a safe congregation into which the Davids and the Abigails of this world could come, find forgiveness, find cleansing, find accountability, find help uh, for the struggles and the pains that they are going through, and yes, even find loving discipline to bring them back when they refuse to repent. But I pray, Father, that this church would be a safe haven for people who have messed up families, and that by your blueprints and by your grace, you would take families that are described as couldn't be worse to couldn't be better. And that these families themselves would be vehicles of your grace to minister to new families that come in. Father, we need your grace. We recognize that we need your grace for our families. And so we submit ourselves to you and we say, Lord, we want to be like David, following hard after you. And yet, when we fall, do not cast us away. But Father, enable us to hate the sin the more and to cling to you the more and to be a people that magnify your grace, your mercy, and who love your law. Bless this, your people, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.